Welcome to Eco-Activist Journeys. Today's podcast is a virtual event recording that happened at the University of St. Andrews, um, where I interviewed the climate activist Luisa Neubauer from Germany, um, and it was a really inspiring conversation. So I wanted to share it on here with you, and I really hope that you enjoy it. Um, yeah, my name is Leah. I'm the Student Association Environment Officer at the University. And today's event is about um, the power of the collective. Um, and I'll be talking to um, Luisa Neubauer. Um, but before I do that and we start the introduction, I'm going to invite um, Dr. Louise Reed from the School of um, Geography and Sustainable Development um, to give a short introduction and to officially open the event. Um, so I just want to say welcome to everybody for joining us and thank you very much to Louisa for being so generous with her time and coming to speak to us today. So before we start off, I just got a little bit of introduction to do by so that you're familiar with Louisa and who she is and a bit about her background. And then Leah's got some questions that she's going to pose to Louisa. So it'll be more like a sort of conversation between the two of them. And feel free to make any notes about questions or queries you may have, and we'll come to them at the end of the conversation. If there's anything throughout that you want a bit of clarity about or a query that you you want Louisa to deal with there and then, then we'll try and pose those as we go through. But please try and keep the bulk of your questions um, till the end. That'd be great. Thank you. So as I said, it's really great to have Louisa with us today. In case you didn't know, um, Louisa has been one of the co-organisers of Fridays for the Future, and she's been really one of the most prominent representatives of the German movement of Fridays for the Future. So for instance, in um, 2018, she met um, really famous Greta Thunberg at the UN Climate Change Conference and really from that um, was has been influential in sort of generating momentum around that sort of movement in Germany along with many other activists. So since then Louise has been really heavily involved at a quite a high strategic level with heads of states and governments for instance participating in the World Climate Conference in Madrid and World Economic Forum. Um, in 2020 um, she's pr protested as well with um, against Siemens participation in um, the Australian hard coal mine and was really influential in that too. So just a little bit about Louisa and what she's been doing more recently. So she completed her um, bachelor's degree or her undergraduate degree in geography in 2019 and is actually in the midst of doing all these other really um, amazing initiatives is studying a master's. Um, and together last year with Alexander, she published a book which was called From the End of the Climate Crisis, A Story of Our Future in 2019. And then, you know, I don't know where she gets the time, but she's also managed to host one of the um, Spotify original podcasts called 1.5 Grad or 1.5 Degrees and writes a column for the German magazine Stern. So as you can see, incredible achievements and really, honestly, I don't know where you get the time to do it. Um, but I'm sure that uh, you could find out more about Louisa online at any point. So without further ado, it'd be, um, I'm just going to hand over to Leah and Louisa, who will start a conversation between them. And Leah will be able to um, we'll get to know Louisa a bit more through the following questions. Yes, thank you for the lovely introduction, Louise. And um, yeah, once now we have all the formalities done, I guess we'll we'll start the conversation and um, yeah, I'm really, really excited uh, about today um, and really from my side, really want to warmly um, welcome Lisa as well. Um, so I thought just to start us off, maybe you can tell us a little bit more about um, your journey as a climate activist and what initial steps you took to build the Fridays for Future movement in Germany. Um, yeah, sure. Uh, first of all, Thank you so much for having me and for hosting this um, lovely event. I feel very much um, like traveling back a bit. I uh, studied at UCL once uh, like for a year um, during my undergraduate study. So um, and, I, and I looked at an Andrews a lot um, and considered to even, you know, uh, apply. So this is really nice to, to join this way around. Um, yeah, so I think I, I'm being oftentimes asked, why did you decide to become a climate activist or, you know, what made you to, you know, go on the streets and so on. And I often fear that people kind of wait for this one report, one article, one, uh, you know, experience that really turned things around. And I don't think 
for me at least it didn't work that way but it was more a um, kind of process before i before i got involved in climate activism i was already involved in initiatives i think early on you would say you you know you are part of you know in, at the universities you have societies I, I joined those too i was part of you know some kind of ngo work and i did this really nice stuff that you do when you are you know when you're kind of worried about things but you also don't really think that your personal contribution matters that much and that's a very 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 comfortable space to be in because you get to do the nice things that you know it, it, it worked well in your cv and people tell you it's good to you know do some charity kind of stuff and it feels like charity it feels like charity to the planet but you know after all that's what i believed for a very long time you know eventually we live in such developed democracies they will eventually take care and eventually i felt you know we have ministries and we have governments and they will sort things out so i didn't you know i didn't have this drive i didn't have this angriness in me i didn't have this um, impatience in me that kind of, you know, would have made me a climate activist earlier on. And it was only when um, three years after the Paris Agreement was signed that I we had this incredible um, hot summer in Germany and there were very prominent fires in, in Sweden, for instance, in Greece. So that was really, you know, the climate crisis was happening within Europe in a, in a different kind of um, imaginary. And at the same time, we had an issue around a coal power plant and a, a coal mine in Germany, which is very, a very, very prominent debate. And I looked around and I saw those fires and I felt it was so irrational that people would, you know, consider to to leave those coal power plants on for longer than necessary. Why those trees, you know, a thousand kilometers, you know, further away would just be burning in the under the sun. And it was also that time that I learned that after the Paris Agreement was signed, there was so much additional coal power plants being installed, um, which, you know, equaled the coal, the coal power capacity of Germany. And that's that's bad because, you know, uh, eight of the 10 largest CO2 emitters are German coal power plants. And it was, you know, all within that time that I kind of felt something doesn't work out here and it didn't add up. And that was, um, you know, what was mentioned earlier um, in this event when I, you know, traveled to the UN Climate Conference, um, obviously as some kind of delegate for something, because that's what you used to do. You went to those events as a delegate because it made sense and you worked within the system because the systems were to, supposed to work out for you. And I got there and I saw how things are not working out at all and how the climate conference isn't, you know, managing to to stop the climate crisis. And that is when I felt, OK, I needed to do something. And I feel, you know, looking, you know, when, when people describe me as a climate activist and they say that I write books and they do podcasts, it seems so natural to do those things. But I just, you know, I want to emphasize here. Climate activism was way, way, way outside my comfort zone. I hated the idea of, you know, being on the streets and, you know, asking for people to come somewhere and maybe they wouldn't show up. And I didn't like the idea that we would protest outside an institution. I wanted to work inside the institutions. I thought they would just, you know, manage to do things. And also I thought, you know, by the end of the day, other people would do it. But I didn't. So I decided we need to do something. And luckily I wasn't by myself. And we started Fires of Future in Germany. And yeah, that um, changed a lot for me. Yeah, thank you. I think that's a, a wonderful introduction really to say that really reflects a lot of, well, uh, personal as being active in, in the climate movement myself, that just reflects a lot of stories. It's not, it's very rarely one, this one moment or um, yeah, article that you read, but it's more like realizing, okay, I can't be silent any longer. and. Um, and I need to do something. And I think realizing that, like, I think sometimes if I were to go back to look at my younger shy self that did not speak in front of people and crowds and look at, okay, now I can do those sort of things. I'm like, oh, how, how did yeah. I do it? But I think it just grows from that sense of you need to do something. And then you also realize actually it's actually empowering and you can see other people um, join exactly. that. Movement. So, yeah. yeah. Um, moving on to our next question, I wanted to ask you, what do you see as some of the, the biggest challenge in, in addressing the climate crises, um, firstly in Germany, but then also more generally in the world? Well, um, so first of all, I think obviously there, there are 1000 things that don't work out right now, but I think maybe just to name two things that are, you know, challenges that we are facing is for once it's that currently 
um, politics, or I would say democratic um, governments, they're not in a sense designed to tackle or successfully um, you know, take up the challenge of the climate crisis. And I say this in an absolute pro-democratic way, you know, I'm, I'm a, you know, I, I, I very much believe in democracies, but right now the logic, um, you know, in which they function, they're not designed for a challenge like the climate crisis. And why should they, you know, democracies early on hadn't issues like a climate crisis to face. So, and just to give, you know, one example would be, you know, why are people, um, how, why would um, MPs get elected? And um, they get elected because they do stuff for a constituency for a certain amount of time, for years or so on. And, you know, with the climate crisis, we find something, you know, a challenge that, you know, crosses boundaries, um, like there were none, um, that works, you know, within decades. So we have a, a, an issue of, you know, geography and times that, you know, mess with the way that, you know, usually um, politics works. And so obviously we have to, you know, we have to think about what kind of institutional um, dynamics do we need to maybe implement or, you know, push for? Um, what do we need to shift in the way that we think about politics? How can we, you know, design democracies or, you know, improve democracies to a point that they can actually successfully um, tackle a a climate crisis. And I think the second thing that really very much connects with that is that the climate or the climate mitigation very much has a marketing issue because there is, you know, what we see since Biosphere Future has started, and I think early on, of course, too, um, industries, governments very easy, like very quickly understood um, that climate mitigation is something that looks very good on websites, on, you know, PR um, things. Um, yet, when you very much look into the solutions and what is actually needed to overcome the ecological catastrophes that are, you know, way broader than just global warming, that you know, basically concern all the the material flows we have around the world, you know, the gases, um, you know, we are we're facing a, a issue with planetary boundaries. When you look at the solutions and where, where we will get to a point of less destruction, less emissions and you know less land grabbing and less pollution all those things that we need less of you know all those things that we need to stop that is really really bad to sell and it gives it's really hard to to tell the story of why should people be you know amazed about it what does their personally get you know what's their personal gain from this and you know ideally of course we think of this you know free world this just world where our air is clean and our water is clean everything is very you know nice yet that is usually not what incentivizes people who have been living in neoliberalist contexts for decades and where, you know, by the end of the day, everything around you tells you that when there's a problem, you know, you can as a single person improve yourself, optimize yourself to do it, you know, things are individualized. So we see very much of a cultural conflict here in addition to the issue of the political dynamics that we, you know, that we need to shift in a way or that we need to push in a way that they can actually take up the challenge. And then, of course, there are one million other things I said. <laughs> yeah, indeed, I think the the framing of looking at it, it's a wicked problem, really. That's that's what it is. It's just very complex and there are a lot of things that play into it. And it is a challenge looking at our governance system and how politicians are in, in office for short, short term. So how do we how do we make them accountable for something that they don't have to yeah, stand up for anymore after yeah, that time of exactly. office? And, and I guess sometimes the struggle is also some, some of these decisions that are being made that are hugely beneficial on a societal level in the long term as well, that they can't always be seen immediately. So the steps that we take now for climate crises um, and climate action solutions, they won't be visible immediately. And I think that's difficult because then you're doing unpopular stuff, but yeah, have to sort of bring bring that back to, to the people and say, oh, well, but in the long run, this will be good. Um, so I do think it's definitely a, a problem and communication problem, of course, as well. Like we, it feels like we constantly have to sell climate crisis in the media and be like, look, report on this. Why are you not talking about this? Um, and it, it's, yeah, that's, I think, definitely a struggle as well. 
maybe I think talking of that, I think one could definitely speak of an ego problem as well, because, you know, we're facing a crisis that has come to a point where it is. And so the quality of emissions, you know, was emitted in the past um, 30, 40 years. So these are still people who are, you know, technically still in charge or, you know, somewhere around. And, you know, coming up now and say, hey, actually, you know, we've got an issue here. Um, it's very hard to communicate that without, you know, opening up the future generational conflict. And, you know, we also do it sometimes because we think it's productive. But it really means that there is a large number of people structurally seen mostly men, actually, white men, actually, um, that, and that's, you know, that's a, a structural thing I said, that, um, you know, by acknowledging the climate crisis as a crisis that it is, have to, in a sense, kind of also acknowledge that they obviously ignored a very, very obvious issue for a majority of the lifetime. And that is, you know, that something has to do with how you how you see yourself and what you think about yourself and how, you know, how you kind of, you know, think about your own biography and what you did for whom and, you know, what's the purpose of you, you know, being the word and so on. These are really the questions. And we see that a lot when talking to politicians and I think most climate activists make similar experiences. At that point that you kind of, you know, encounter a, a, a politician or a head of state or so on and you talk about the climate crisis, they will most certainly tell you that they have been doing something in the past as well. And, you know, if, even if, you know, when, when I was you, I was marching for Iraq as well and so on. And they will tell you something which doesn't have to do with the problem at all. Um, and, you know, we were very irritated in the beginning, but now it just makes so much sense because that's really, you know, the, the intuitive thing you do to kind of justify before yourself that you were doing something, even though everyone in the room knows that obviously it wasn't enough and obviously things were still ignored and obviously people still allowed things to happen, even if you didn't feel like it. No, I, I agree. It's definitely there's a problem of cognitive dissonance there that you just see people um, that there's just things all of us do because we live in a very um, our lifestyle is dependent, is tied into a fossil fuel system. So obviously, so everyone will be doing some some things in their life that will be good for the planet. So it's it's difficult then for people then they start justifying, well, why is that? And I think there's so much unlearning and learning that all of us need to do in terms of how we view life and how, and even how the Western view really, how the world runs dominates. I think we'll talk a little bit about that. But um, the next question I really wanted to ask you is one that um, one of my professors actually asked me in a green politics class. And she asked, well, what makes this difference? And this was just, when was this? 2000, um, was this a beginning of 2020? So it was still, um, yeah, just as the start of, um, just after 2019 when all of the global climate marches happened. And then she asked, well, what makes this different, um, this climate movement? Because obviously it's not, the environmental movement is not new um, mm -hmm. in terms of that. There've been people standing up for this for so, so long. So what would you say makes the What's current um, climate youth movement different? Um, well, on a um, cultural side, I think, what tries the future doesn't, you know, this is really hard to speak about those things because I obviously acknowledge that we are not the first climate movement, we're not the first climate youth movement, you know, there's been people, you know, you know, doing stuff for so many decades and, you know, we've been, you know, we've been seeing climate um, justice fights everywhere, most, significant, most significantly, obviously, on the front lines, I really very much don't want to invisibilize that, but, you know, looking at what maybe could be perceived in the Fight Future movement as, you know, novel, I think we very much talk about um, how, you know, Fridays for Future was or is a movement that emerged very much um, far away from the front lines. By now, we are, you know, we are in 120-ish countries. We are, you know, we are frontline fighters from India to Malaysia to Costa Rica and so on. So that has shifted. But, you know, a movement that emerged in Sweden, you know, then very much, very grew quickly in, in the UK and Belgium and Germany and so on. Um, so uh, technically, Fridays for Future was doomed to fail because why do people care about the climate crisis uh, where, you know, the catastrophe it's, itself seems so far away and it's so easy to ignore it. And I think what Fridays for Future did culturally is it um, moved the or pulled 
pull the climate catastrophe from the future to the present through children and through children telling their parents, what are you doing about my future? And suddenly, you know, you can very much ignore the climate crisis if you really want to. Um, and you can even ignore the children in Nigeria or India, you know, suffering from this crisis if you really want to. That is obviously, as we see, possible. Um, but it's really hard to ignore your own children. It's really hard to tell your own children, you know what, your future, uh, I'm not too sure about it, you know, we'll see. And that is actually, that has, um, that has, you know, the, the geographic um, discrepancy that we are seeing with the climate crisis, with the polluters being, you know, at a different place from where the pollution ends up to be. We kind of end the, obviously, the time gap that we're seeing. We kind of twisted that around and wrote the the future to those who are, you know, causing it today. And that is, I think, some of the most, you know, um, culturally significant um, difference that we're seeing from um, from uh, earlier movement, you know, in, in movement, in, in climate justice movement theory, there sort of two philosophies um, about how to overcome the, the time and space um, discrepancy. And one is, you know, you, you create urgency through urgent action, which is what Fires Future does, which is what Extinction Rebellion very prominently does. So they, they you, know, you know, kind of tell you that there is an urgent thing to care about because the action is urgent, not necessarily because the climate crisis is so urgent in front of everyone eye, everyone's eyes. And the other philosophy would be to kind of create solidarity and solidarity through urgency. So, you know, you would highlight very much the frontline fighters. You would say, look at those people in Africa, South America or wherever. They are suffering from our pollution. Please stop our pollution now here. And these philosophies, you know, you know, we and maybe in a sense opened up together with other movements. It's kind of new philosophy where you say, okay, we bring the climate crisis here through ourselves, through our children, through our stories and our futures. Second um, difference, I would say, to to earlier movements, is I think um, this, and that is not that is something that we've maybe only reinvented. Um, also, which is this um, this the sense of intervention. So we are not, you know, I was involved in in some sort of environmental protection things, um, which was also always considered something to, to you do in your free time. It was always a hobby. It was always a nice charity work that you would do, even if you would do it in a very engaged way. And we went to a state of intervention where we said, you know what, this is nothing for our free time. That this concerning our lives. And what can be more important than that? So obviously we cannot go to school. Obviously we're doing this in the mornings. Obviously we're doing it when you know other people feel, um, you know, there should be somewhere else. And that is what in social movement theory you, you call a dilemma action. So we caused a dilemma for everyone else reacting on us because there was no adequate way of responding to us because as soon as you would you know say oh go back to school you would very much you know openly deny the climate crisis as an urgent problem but if you wouldn't say anything obviously you know you would get the impression that people wouldn't care about education so you know there was no right way to react to that and i think this dilemma style in which we kind of emerged and intervened i think that was something that hasn't happened this outspokenly maybe um, for, for quite a while in in those contexts where we were. Yeah, yeah, I think I agree. Um, that makes a lot of sense. Going up from some of the things that we just talked or you just talked about really, um, when we link climate crisis, because obviously um, Fridays for Future very much emerged well in Sweden and Europe, um, but the climate crisis is most um, well, most crucially affecting people in, in developing countries and in the places in the world where um, they have contributed the least to climate change. So it's very much yeah, a justice issue as well. Um, so what can we, um, as people living, studying um, in the West and developed world, how can we address these injustices that the climate crisis poses on a global level? Well, you know, I, I think that's the point where I would come back to those uh, two philosophies, which you can follow there. One is, you know, we need to we need to get our emissions um, to zero, to real zero, and um, to kind of and you know make big jumps there, um, because from a justice perspective, is you know it's really hard to justify um, why we're still limiting the way we are, even if there's so much we could do. Um, 
that is, you know, on a, on a climate mitigation level, I think the, the one thing that, you know, um, <laughs> So there's an elephant in the room. Yet there is also the second aspect or the second, you know, philosophy or dimension to it, which is obviously acknowledging that this is not something we're doing for us because it's nice and pleasant only. We should be doing it because it's nice and pleasant. Ideally, we find this way of talking about climate mitigation. But more importantly, um, we're doing this because we acknowledge that, you know, we are the we are we as in this space right now, you know, Western, Northern kind of worthy people that get to spend an afternoon at a, you know, Zoom hangout um, at a very good university and those things, you know, the, we are we're the privileged ones here. And it is also about to, you know, not to just highlight who are, you know, confronted by our emissions, but, you know, very much making space for that struggle, making space for that stories, making space for the, the faces, the, the people and what they have to say. And um, this doesn't mean, you know, you know, giving a, a chair. How do you say it? Letting a chair, allowing someone to have a chair at the table, a seat at the table. That's what you say. It's not about that. It's about, you know, getting together and, you know, posing the question, what kind of table would we like? And what kind of table are we all comfortable with? So it goes very much beyond acknowledging that there's someone suffering more of the climate crisis than we are, um, but you know, um, embracing that there is a, a deep divide and a deep injustice that we are facing. Yeah, I, I agree. Thank you. Thank you for highlighting that. I think it's important for us to acknowledge firstly well our privilege, and then say, well, if we have well, look at where we seated, right? Like you said, um, digitally uh, <laughs> connected. Um, yeah, speaking in at some, well online with St Andrews, and I think well, how do we how do we connect that in terms of like what responsibilities do each of us then individually carry actually to speak to speak about this, to do something about this, um, and to actually actively just take a stance. But then, like I said, take, yeah. yeah. And actually, I think, you know, speaking of which is also has to do a lot with, you know, who is invited to these occasions, to these events, and maybe, you know, you're going to host a different event with someone, you know, speaking from a frontline community or the global south, because, you know, it's also easy to, you know, it's, I, I very much hesitate to say something about them or they out there, because I would, you know, I, I would want to have us together at this place, at this moment already, um, where we, you know, and don't have to talk about someone, but with or get the chance to talk with someone. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you say that because I do think that's very important for us to look at that. We're looking at stories and people actually giving a voice to to those most affected by climate by the yeah. climate crisis. So, yeah, that that's very important. Um, I want to talk a little bit about um, climate anxiety because I think as young people, there's so much happening in the world that seems really scary. Uh, that's happening to our future that sometimes seems out of control about like what could we even do um, and, and it's just a really real concern so how can we address this growing anxiety for the future um, into something constructive? Um, well I think it has to do with acknowledging first that there is such a thing like climate anxiety um, because I think you know a lot of people you know, tend to ignore that or invest a lot of energy um, to cover that up. And I think um, ideally we acknowledge, we hug this kind of anxiety that we have, we let it be um, and, you know, allow ourselves to, to be touched for a moment. You know, they tell you to, you know, it's, you know, being emotional in these days and these societies that we live in, that is not something that is, you know, um, something that, you know, people applaud you for usually. And, um, you know, we live in such a productivity driven um, time where it's really, you know, we're just, you know, you being there, the human being and understanding that you have emotions, that you're not ignoring the the catastrophes everywhere that you are you know not in denial that you're not ignorant and so on i think that's something that is you know usually not 
yeah, not something that is very much supported by your by the by institutions around us, by our societal environments, but that's something that is of so much value. And um, you know, we have such an issue worldwide with you know in the in the face of those crises with empathy. You know, um, you know we we have to lower our ability to show empathy to a certain point that we can, you know, up to now that we can still justify the ways that we pollute, that we trade, that we destroy and degrade and so on. So, you know, showing empathy for people suffering from the climate crisis, showing empathy for those effects, that's actually quite a radical thing to do because, you know, um, yeah, our systems everywhere are actually driven by um, a very very low level of empathy that allows those things only to happen so i would you know um first of all would would maybe you know suggest that and then secondly of course um i feel ideally um angriness um anxiety um also this um you know feeling of loss um that we are sensing that can be such a constructive force when it comes to you know creating that energy that you know, gets it out in the street, gets us doing. Um, and it can be a, a huge, a huge power um, that we have, that we own, and that we let ourselves be driven by um, what, what we by what, what we feel and what we are scared of and so on. Um, and that, that is surely a process, but ideally we, we get to that point. And then eventually, you know, I don't think there is something more powerful than, you know, watching people speak from their hearts and watching people be on the streets, you know, much because they're feeling it and they, you know, they're knowing they're doing this right thing. And I feel oftentimes it is that very um, moment that you get, for instance, to a big protest and you see this crowd around you and you look around and you understand, wow, this is not me, not just me feeling this way. This is, I feel for many people, a huge moment of relief because not because, you know, it's a, it's a bit of a party going on and you're on the streets in the sun, but you suddenly feel like, wow, deep down, even if I didn't know it, I was kind of feeling alone with this because that's what the climate crisis does. It isolates us. And that's obviously the worst thing that could happen because what we need is the power of the collective. So, um, you know, what ideally we take this, you know, these anxiety that we feel sometimes more or less or, you know, in between and we we bring this towards each other and we we allow this to be to to be part of our community to our collective and to not you know sit alone with it and um you know allow this anxiety to separate us and there's you know there's a the different or maybe a side aspect to this and that's a, that's about being brave we have to be incredibly brave to question the status quo to question you know some of those systems that are currently working against people and the planet we have to be incredibly brave to you know get over the expectations from everyone around us signaling us we should just get back to work or we should not worry or we should you know leave it to the government or to you know not take ourselves too seriously that is all to do with braveness and it's really really difficult to be brave when you're by yourself it's really difficult to be brave when you're feeling lonely because brave you know being brave is something that happens when you're in a community when you're surrounded by like-minded people when you're feeling that you're not by yourself with this so yeah, taking this anxiety, but not, you know, leaving it alone, but, um, you know, sharing this, bringing this together with others. I think that is, that can, you know, be, be very magical at the end of the day. Mm. Yeah, thank you for linking that back to today's topic of the power of the collective as well. But honestly, I think many of those things really spoke to the heart because I think, I mean, I see that reflected in when I was younger and started caring about all sorts of environmental things, whether that was first just about other animals and then seeing them suffer. And it would just really cause a lot of like emotional pain in terms of that I just have to sit and cry. But back then I was maybe 13 years old and I didn't know what, well, what do I do with this now? And then if we are really if that this is the world we live in like then we can start people start telling you well but there's so many things to cry about in the world right because there are so many things that are wrong but i think instead of shutting it all down and saying well it's all fine and we have to deal with it we actually like i just be brave and, and speak about it and i think yeah that that really spoke to the heart so thank you thank you very much um 
for, for, for addressing that. Um, on the point, I mean, you're also a fellow student, so I wanted to ask you, what, what do you think um, universities can and should do to address the climate crisis, but also to support activists and the students? So. Oh, that's um, that's a very good question, and uh, because there's so much, you know, uh, so much that is on the shoulders of institutions right now, and you know, maybe maybe breaking it down to um, to I think four aspects. Um, one is, of course, we talk of an educational institution, so you know, we face a huge, you know, knowledge or information crisis. Um, we talk about, you know, information about the climate crisis, but also about, you know, disinformation about the climate crisis. Posts on Facebook are shared four times more often when they're fake news. I mean, and that's because, you know, um, social platforms, you know, benefit from people spending more time there. So it's, you know, it's it's a real issue how to get solid and, you know, um, yeah, hard facts to the people and to educate students about that. And that has a lot to do with education um, at universities. And that has a lot to do with, you know, the climate crisis. I think it's possibly still the case was often, you know, considered to be an issue that was, you know, important for geographers, which is I study or biologists, maybe, you know, biodiversity studies or so on. Yet we all know, and I mean, that's, you know, by now that's so obvious, the climate crisis concerns every kind of discipline there is, you know, that is an issue of, um, you know, economics, that's an issue of politics, that's an issue of philosophy, that's, you know, it's in every single aspect of our um, education, of our university education as well. So I think, you know, implementing um, the climate crisis, the ecological crisis um, into, into the curriculum um, everywhere. Um, to allow, you know, not a single student to leave university in, in denial of what is happening out there. I think that is one really important thing. Secondly, it is not just education about the issue, but education about ourselves. Um, you know, it's, it's really easy to tell people about the climate crisis. And I study geography for six years now, and I'm currently studying in a, in a graduate course. And there are, I don't know, maybe 70 to 100 people in my in my year. And I would say, maybe four or five of them would call themselves climate activists. They've been studying for six years about like the, the, the ecological breakdown, about what is going wrong with the planet, what, what is happening with the climate crisis. And they're not bad people. They're all really nice. They're, they're genuinely good people, yet they are not anywhere near to climate activism, at least most of them. And that is because, you know, the climate crisis or you know solving the climate crisis won't be about passing on information about the albedo effect but it's about passing on this very you know tiny but very important information that you personally yes you who is sitting right in front of me you matter in this you matter whether you do something and you matter whether you don't do something this is a collective crisis and there is not a single person that you know isn't concerned with this technically at least you know this is and i think this is maybe one of the most underrated um, pieces of information of all because you know the, the every single person who is not doing anything allows a climate crisis to be fueled every single day and so this is about finding out you know why we as people you know in this very you know significant moment um, in history have to you know very much question from what what we are, who we are, and what we're doing here, um, that is, and I think that is that has nothing to do with you know science or so on. This has something to do with you know some kind of philosophy of humanity or so on, and that has to do with you know um, educating students as you know global citizens, as people living on a dying planet, and people maybe not wanting to do this for the rest of their lives. And this has to do with every young person in the world knowing they will have to spend the rest of their lifetime in the midst of an ecological breakdown. And someone needs to tell them, and someone needs to tell them that they are not powerless in this, and that they are not voiceless in this. Um, yet it, it will be tough, it will be hard, we have to fight for things. That's the second thing. Third thing, obviously, um, you know, universities and institutions as, you know, institutions that have uh, money that are invested oftentimes in fossil fuels. I'm not sure, St. Andrews divested what my and my university, we, we did a divestment campaign at UCL. I joined the divestment campaign. Yeah, cool. Um, and that is obviously, you know, that has to do with institutional um, 
uh, awareness it has to do with you know understanding yourself as a player in this as someone who has money or pass on money and then obviously and that would be the fourth aspect to this um it has to do there is the role of university as very as institutions that are respected as institutions that have not only you know a fiscal voice but a political voice and I remember, you know, when I studied at UCL, that was the, the year when a lot of our professors went on strike um, about the pensions. And, you know, it was obvious that they were striking because, you know, something was wrong with the system. And they said, well, I can't work in this environment anymore if I know that I'm not going to be paid a pension or rent or something. And um, this was and this was so, you know, it seemed to me so natural for them to go to strike. And yet it was a political. And I wonder ever since why aren't professors yet, you know, going striking with their students in masses saying, you know what, I can teach you all day about the ecological breakdown, but you know, we don't have the time to wait for all these bright students to go into government themselves to fix it. It's about the government's in charge right now. And so on, I think there's, and that also counts for universities, you know, as a whole claiming, you know, there's a climate emergency, excuse us, you know, we need to change something here. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Um, Definitely very powerful words um, because it is, it is, I think, well, I, as a student myself, I just look and I'm like, well, technically there's so many things I want to do with my life and I technically want to carry on studying and do this and that. But at the same time, I'm like, well, there's like how I need to go and change stuff in the world. And I think it's just sometimes a really hard position to be in to realize, well, there's so much we need to change in this world. Um, but how can we actually create this change? And I think um, universities are quite unique in the sense that a lot of young people come together who have visions for a different future. Um, and, and I think sometimes it's about listening and seeing, well, how can we actually support those visions and actually have, have the tools to actually change them? And I think that's sometimes what it's looking at. It's like you say, it's not just about facts, but it's looking at, well, how can we actually what are, what are the tools? OK, we know we find out about these other things that are happening in the world, but then how do we go out and do them? And I yeah, also on the other point, yeah. I really agree. Understanding that it's not it's not just people who study this, but it's all of our futures. Whatever you study, whatever career you go into, it's going to affect us and we need to look at it. And I mean, that's just the reality. And the sooner we start addressing it collectively, I think the bigger the chances are that we can actually still do something <laughs> yes. fulfill some of our other dreams that we have with life. Um, yeah, so. a, but you know, that is actually, um, you know, it's a very, obviously very depressing, you know, perspective to say, well, what will I even be, you know, able to do, you know, time is running and we have to do so many things. And I think that is a very strong argument for making climate activism, for making, you know, changing things for getting involved as much fun as possible and that sounds really you know that sounds really you know um banal but actually thinking about the way we want to think to change things you know the way we're getting together the way we're creating communities and that helps a lot of to you know to approach each other with kindness and with empathy and with you know an understanding of maybe all of this won't work out maybe you know we will just completely mess up maybe there is this and it's sadly quite big there's a chance that you know we just won't get things twisted the way it should be twisted that is possible and maybe we will look back at a lifetime that we spent in grief and in despair and in anxiety and that was our life and i wish we look back at the life where we know that we've done everything we could to change the ways and yet, you know, can speak of a life in which we were nice to each other and which we had, you know, communities taking care of each other in which we experienced this, you know, yeah, power of the collective of people, you know, doing good things together and knowing that they're doing this for a reason. Mm. Yeah, I think there's definitely a fine balance between at the one hand showing the hard facts and showing, well, this is really critical and we need to address it but then also not making people hopeless around that nothing can be done and i think maybe this last year with so many of the other social justice issues that have come to the surface in our world system is actually showing us that this is an opportunity to actually address so many of the issues and struggles that we're facing 
collectively together like i mean the climate crisis yeah it's about healing looking at how we can protect our environment and yeah but it's also so much more than that it's about people and communities so yeah um i'm gonna cut a few questions just to leave some time so we can have some audience um questions but to really dive into that topic of the power of the collective well how do you think how can we rise together collectively to to address this challenge and to feel less alone how can we do it okay uh, hello louisa can you tell us how to change the world in three minutes um well eventually i think uh, we will have to drastically set our priorities here and we will have to you know very much think about um you know how to work towards some of the social tipping points uh, you know i could talk about you know you know carbon taxes to be in, implemented or you know universities to divest or those things but actually more interestingly i find there's an there's an exercise you can do um which is about you know imagining the future because eventually i think you know, obviously, what is stopping us from doing the things we want them to do and from changing the world in the way we would like that to and from, you know, creating futures and so on. I think eventually what is stopping us is that we cannot, we simply cannot imagine a future that is, you know, just and good. That is really hard because we are so well trained in thinking about dystopia. The best selling novels worldwide were dystopian novels or science fiction, um, which are often dystopian too. Um, you know, the, the the movies that we know of, the big future movies, they were either super spacey or very much dystopian. You know, they were horror movies. And so, and, you know, who's telling us a really good story about this genuine nice future? And I think it has to be us who's telling this, this story. And it is, you know, the climate movement as well. And I think, you know, Friday's Future too, we have focused a lot of time and energy on, you know, talking about these really big catastrophes coming up or happening right now. And we spend very little energy in, you know, images of, you know, better alternatives. And this means this means we very much um, relied on people to hate these catastrophes, these dystopians, so much that they would kind of run away and say, okay, not get, let's get, let's move away from that. But actually, that hasn't happened because what people said is, oh, there's going to be a flood. Well, let, let's build a wall. Oh, there's people, you know, migrating because they're losing, you know, their their homes. Oh, let's build a wall. Um, you know, you know, that's the people, you know, don't in, in those moments where we confront them with catastrophes don't tend to be this innovative and they don't tend to think about, you know, solving the climate crisis and some social issues too. That just that's not what's happening. So what what is it that adds up to this kind of dystopian storytelling that we do a lot, these narratives of catastrophes? We need this really bright option on the other end, which, you know, we allow ourselves to be pulled by. Um, and that I think um, is never happening or most well, it's rarely happening. Um, at least I never went to a university class or school class where I, you know, where I was sat down and be taught how to imagine futures. Um, so there is an exercise you can do. And basically it goes like this. You think about a time, say 2030, and you close your eyes and you think about um, your um, living room. And you think about this kind of couch you live, think um, sitting on. And basically, you know, you're imagining yourself, where will I be sitting in 2030 if everything was possible? What kind of you know house would this be? Would there be a street outside? Would it be bright? Whatever. And then you go to the fridge and you open the fridge and you think about what is there in the fridge? Where does this food come from? What do I eat? What? How is it wrapped? And um, if, if everything was possible, if you could just, you know, imagine every beautiful thing we can, you know, think about. And then um, you think about, 2030 a journey that you do a, a a big exciting adventure that you will do think about a place you want to see or something you want to accomplish how will you get there what will you do there what will you know what will the the environment be like and you so you create this like nice scenery starting from what is you know what you're used to living rooms fridges and so on and then you think back from 2030 to 2021 you think okay so what made this possible what brought me here and you think about three tipping points that, that were reached, or three moments of changes. For instance, you know, they found out um, that it was very much useful if um, 
you know, there was, I don't know, a indicator that would measure the health of the society in a country and rank it. And suddenly governments were incentivized to keep people as healthy as possible. And they found out, oh, we're not giving them really good food and they're breathing really bad air and they're drinking really bad water. And suddenly there was, you know, a ranking system that said, oh, this is the, this is the healthiest country on earth. Well, we never thought this, but well done, Nicaragua, whatever. And, um, and you think about those things and suddenly, you know, creating this different future and thinking about tipping points, you know, that, you know, you break a seemingly impossible task to something that's very much reachable. And I think, you know, coming back to that, dream big, imagine futures, think about small tipping points that can be reached and, you know, allow yourself to be, you know, amazed by what is possible if we really wanted to and how we get there, how we make it possible and what role we have to play in this. Yes, thank you. I think as a um, finally undergraduate student, I'm just going to sit here right now and say challenge to the University of St Andrews bring big imagination into the classrooms to really get us to everyone to think about, well, what does the future hold and what do we want the future and what are the tools that we can actually use to to get us there? And, and yeah, really, how does it affect all in every in all spheres of topics? So I think, yeah, wow. And um, thank you. I wanted I wanted to quickly leave some time if there's a question from the chat room. Um, Louise, if you want to take over and pose any questions that might have come in. OK. Um, thank you, Louisa. So we do have a couple of questions that have come in and I'll just give you them one at a time and then you can, can respond and feel free to put more in if there are other people listening who have questions. So if the first question was that um, e economists clearly state that you cannot intervene in the market in the global economy. So how do you think politicians can change a global economy? Uh, who again says that you can't intervene in a global market? Economists. Well, you know, politics is about regulating and about creating rules under which, you know, people can live wealthy and happily together and peacefully, hopefully. Um, so, you know, there was, I mean, that's a very, it seems to me like a 20th century idea. You know, there was this idea when you said, you know, the market was of things, but, you know, that's a theory that was, you know, well applied to practice, but usually it should work the other way around where you have, you know, <laughs> the real world and you kind of see, oh, what kind of theory is underlying that? Um, I, um, you know, there is more and more economists coming out and it's actually, you know, very, you know, strong and powerful and loud economic, like voices from economy who say, actually, um, what we need to do is to, you know, regulate and maybe you could call it intervene very quickly uh, there won't be a thriving economy on a dying planet. There won't be a thriving economy on a, you know, in a, in a climate disaster. Um, so ideally, um, you know, governments grow up to that. And obviously, and I think, you know, there is a big issue right now in how productive economies are measured by GDP. Yet GDP is growing when there's a climate disaster and when people get sick and when people, you know, die and so on. And when, you know, a GDP, you know, it's it's for an economy it works out better when the the tree is cut than when it's you know living and providing fresh air so there's obviously something very much twisted and you know it's easy to say well just change the economy and you know we will be fine and you know things work out no it's actually there is a real 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 life issue to how to you know manage big economies to become from climate pollutant economies to climate justice economies and we have never done this before i think it's important to acknowledge that you know there there is no blueprint for this there's no playbook um, and so we will have to be, um, you know, yeah, again, brave there. Um, and we're fortunate because there are very, very strong um, voices in democracies um, and in economies worldwide that, you know, give us ideas, you know, which I, I guess many people will have, you know, heard about the donut economy, uh, economics. Um, we have more and more people, um, you know, from lots of disciplines coming up and providing alternatives um, and then it's about obviously the pressure um, that is needed to intervent them and to um, yeah push for that but yeah to, to those economists to claim that markets or that societies are better off with our politics intervening i wish them all the best but that's clearly you know every aspect of reality is telling us differently thanks 
<laughs> I just wanted to say, like, um, when I, I saw that question, I was like, oh, I completely disagree that economies can't, like, it can't, like, you can't, like, you ha we have to intervene into our global market. If we look at how much of the global economy and the market is actually ruling how things in the world work, then it's clear that it's not working and that needs to be addressed. And I think maybe that's some of the biggest things that we also need to address in, in classrooms, because I think a lot of theories that are still taught on it, on the economy and how the economy is supposed to function and work, I think it's just not fit for the 21st century anymore and for our future. And I mean, that is a struggle. Well, how do we redefine that? But I think, yeah, that's something we need to do, so. And I think that leads us on really nicely to the next question, that sort of tension between how we view the future and how we view the past. And I think that's reflected in this question by Anonymous about, you know, you said a couple of times through your, your responses today, Lisa, about this sort of inherent tension between younger people and older people. Mm. And that's come out in one of these questions. So um, the question posed was, how important do you think it is to win over older generations? Oh, um, I think, well, well, there are many different older generations and um, I would maybe just differentiate between two here. I'm, I'm 24 and so two of the most prominent generations I'm dealing with is my, my parent generation, which are boomers, and which is my grandmother, grandmother generation, which is, you know, you know, just end of war generation. And there's a huge difference to them because what we see is that from very early stages on in the climate um, of Friday's Future movement, the grandmothers and granddads, they were there. They were totally up for that. They look back on what society has done with the planet. They they look down, you know, they look back at their childhood, you know, you know, just as as wars were ending, as situations were very much dire, and as people, you know, lived with, with much less. And they looked at the time, and you know, so many of them were very much upfront of them. You know, they are, and I mean, you know, some of their some of them, John Siegler, for instance, from Switzerland. You know, they're very much outspoken about. You know how obviously the capitalist fossil capitalist system is not working out anymore. How you know they want their children, their grandchildren, should be more angry. And there is a real, um, I think there is a real, you know, organic relationship growing with this, you know, grandparent and um, yeah, um, granddaughter or grandson generation. Um, and you know, I, I'm seeing that too. Um, I'm writing a book currently with my grandmother about just that very issue, and. Um, and I think there's a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of allyship happening there. Obviously, you know, this is also, um, this doesn't have to be this way always, but I think there are lots of ways to connect. And there's also another cultural dimension, which I find really interesting is, you know, when we earlier spoke about um, how Friday's Future is new and so on, I think there is um, a dynamic happening maybe through the Friday's Future movement and through other things that is usually wisdom, power and the right to speak um, was very much driven by the or yes, underlined or highlighted or allowed by the time that people had spent already on Earth. So it was age, mostly, you know, the, the older you are, being the oldest in the room, being the oldest in the parliament, you know, that gives you certain rights and people listen to you differently. Um, and um, so obviously there was this you know, out, you know, there's kind of rule, you know, there's a politician, you, you, you listen to them and then you say yes and thank you, sir. And um, this has changed um, to a point that now power, wisdom and the right to speak is much more defined by the age you will spend on Earth in the future. So this kind of experience um, power has turned into kind of future power because, you know, obviously people found out it's not necessarily more relevant what you've experienced in the past than what you will experience or want to experience in the future. And so I think this is um, and this shift is um, something that is really, you know, that is really doing something. People come to me and they say, why aren't you scared to speak to politicians? And they say, why should I be scared to speak to politicians? You know, you know, they're, they're there to create, to, to, to correct a future and they're not doing this. So why? You know, couldn't they also be scared a bit? Because so it, it's um, so I think that is a very interesting dynamic happening. And grandparents and grandchildren right now, they are very much, you know, um, easy with that. And then we both look on the boomers in the middle and they are the complicated ones. I say they are the sandwich children there and they have um, we have a hard time because these are the people in power right now who would just love to say, you know what, children? You do your things when it's your turn, but until then, we're just gonna, you know, chill. 
and they thought they had things, you know, that things were just working out for them and they had, you know, their life thing sorted out and their positions in power. And uh, they had worked, you know, very hard in the past decades to now, you know, have a good time and so on. And that is a bigger deal. And that is, I think, where we have the big conflict and where people just don't want to acknowledge that the children are now, you know, you know, disagreeing with their work. Yet what we see is that, um, you know, they're also oftentimes parents. And uh, I feel through these intergenerational relationships that we have as parents, as aunties, as families and so on, through generation, that is the strongest thing we have. And that is why it's important to come together to speak about those things, to, you know, bring your emotions to your parents, to your aunties, to your uncles and so on and say, you know what, I love you so much and I know you love me too, but something about my future that doesn't work out here. Thank you, Louisa. Um, we've, we've, we're actually at time now, so I've got another really interesting question or series of questions that I'd like to ask you. So do you have time to hang on for another five minutes? Yeah. And maybe you could just give me a really brief answer to the yeah, next one. Um, so you talked a bit about imagining the future in 2030 and that sort of scenario planning activity and thinking back about what that would be like now and how to get to that point. Mm -hmm. Can you just tell us really quickly, briefly, um, what does your 2030 look like when you imagine your 2030? So, you know, what's in your fridge? Where are you? How did you okay. get there? Oh, well, that's lovely. OK, I'm going to give you a few um, a few examples. So one thing is I live in Berlin and I will wake up in the morning and there will be birds outside that I hear. And, you know, it, it's something that's. You know, I, I see the sun and I'm not worried about, you know, falling breakdown, but I just enjoy the sun and I hear the birds and I maybe hear some wind and trees. And, you know, right now I look down and there's just, you know, cement everywhere. There's no tree inside, there's no bird inside, but I will, you know, will listen to the, the wind and the, and the leaves and so on and the trees. And um, I probably don't have an alarm on because by then we have reduced working time and, you know, we've realized that, you know, it doesn't work out that you work so much. You don't have time for the things that are most important in your life, which is, you know, being healthy, being with, you know, people that you love and, you know, being yourself, developing, being creative and so on. Um, I will... Uh, live in a place where I hear, you know, the rings of the of the bikes outside rushing by and it's um, bike lanes outside my window where two people can cycle next to each other like or me, maybe even three of them can cycle next to each other and um, they they have also they're all also really small children who cycle because um, they have changed the laws and the, and the um, in how streets are designed so basically there's rarely any you know danger with with cyclists so you can send your children cycling by themselves on those really safe streets and in my fridge um there will be um lots of fruit fruit and vegetables and i don't like shopping at all i don't like being in a supermarket but i don't need to anymore as much because they um introduced this thing where when you sign a contract for a flat you can you know they just give you another contract where you sign this kind of weekly um there's a like a weekly agreement or so on that you know the local farmers will just drop by um fridgeable and vegetable whatever is seasonal to your house or to maybe the street corner or so on and i don't have to do it obviously i can you know i can just say no i want to go shopping by myself but the most comfortable the most convenient and also the cheapest thing obviously is just to go with the, you know the, the regional eco food and vegetable thing and that is for so many other things you know right now it's the most you know trying to live a climate friendly life or whatever that's usually the most inconvenient and it's surely more expensive than not doing it and we've twisted it to the point that the most convenient thing is just you know doing doing the thing that are good you know they make it much more easier for you to be a good person and if you've seen maybe the good place which is a very very good show you should watch it you know nowadays if people want to be good but they don't get the opportunity to be good people because, you know, things are messed up. Yes, those things are happening. And um, I will obviously make a journey to um, see my family in London, um, to which there is a overnight train connection running between Berlin and London. And I just get on the train and I, I, get, I get to London, which is beautiful. And my um, nephew in, living in London will be um, 14 by then. 
and uh, he won't have any problems with his breathing anymore because the the air's clean in London and you know he will have a good time um, in the park and uh, look forward to a very very bright future that we have made possible for him. Thank you, Louisa. It sounds like a really lovely vision of 2030. Um, not too dissimilar from my own, if I have to admit. Mm -hmm. So, and thank you to all of our participants who have posed questions as well. It's really great to get that level of engagement. So now I'm just going to hand over to um, Leah, who's going to bring this session to a close. Yes, I think that was a wonderful note to finish on. So thank you so much, um, Louisa, for sharing that. Um, thank you, Louise, for monitoring the comments and introducing our event today. Um, I think it's honestly been one of the most inspirational discussions I've had in a very long time. So um, it's been an absolute honor and pleasure to speak to you, Louisa. And um, thank you to everyone who's tuned in. Have a wonderful day, rest of your evening, day, whatever time it is from where you're tuning in. And um, yeah, let's let's take this forward and um, use the power of the collective to build hopeful visions for the future. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And goodbye. Thank you for tuning into Ecoactivist Journeys. I really hope you enjoyed today's discussion. And if you did, please follow the Ecoactivist Journeys podcast. Wherever you are in the world, I hope you're doing well. And that this episode has been inspiring for you. Thank you for joining the journey. Take care. Love, Leah.